Welcome to My Life, Exodus Applied, episode 215. We're in the week of Parsha Shlach, and according to the directive of the Alter Rebbe, that we live with the times, so we'll begin with speaking about living with this time, the time when we read this chapter. It is the fourth chapter in the book of Bamidbar, Bamidbar Nosri Baleshcha Shlach, and it has the story of one of the most tragic and most momentous events that shaped actually all of history, and that is the story of the scouts. Shlach Lecha Noshim, God says to Moshe Rabbeinu. He says, send up to you, Lecha, to you men, men of stature. And he chose the, t- the heads of the 12 tribes, send them to Israel to scout out the land and see which is the best way to conquer the land that we're about to enter, the promised land. And what happens indeed, Moshe chooses the best, that moment, that point, at that point they were kosher, meaning they were appropriate, appropriate choices. They were not bad people, they were good people, leaders actually, great people. And then they went on to their journey on their mission, and they came back with a terrible report. How bad Eretz Yisrael is, and that it's a land that we cannot conquer, land with giants, we are unable to, to vanquish it. And the classic words that they used, which was, Eretz Echel a land that consumes its inhabitants. And as such, they caused great grief to the entire Jewish people who said, why are we going? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? And with their complaints, and this was a night of tears and crying. And that's when Hashem says, Oh, they want to cry, this will be a pchiladatis, crying for generations. This will be the night of Tishabov, which later, of course, will also be a night of crying for other tragic events that would happen, as the Mishnah says in Tainus, the five tragic events, beginning with this, with the Dibasa basically the slander of the land that the scouts initiated. Except for two of the twelve, all ten, the consensus was this is not a place we can go to. Who were the two? Kolov and Yeshua. For the very different reasons, Kolov went to the Chevron to pray at the Marasa Machpela. Yeshua, Moshe Rabbeinu prayed for him. So they were not caught up in this conspiracy, in this plot. On the contrary, they declared and announced and said, absolutely, this is the land, the promised land that God gave us, and we can absolutely conquer it. And the story goes through all the details, which I'm not going to go through, but this is the gist of it. The big, big, big question, of course, is what happened here? What is this story? In that moment, when they were sent, they were fine. Not only fine, as I said, they were the best. What happened? And didn't they do what they asked to do? They were asked to go and scout out the land, and they came back with this report. That's when they asked to do that. What's this? Why is a crime here? So when you look deeper into the stories, to start with the first verse, Shlach Lecha, What's the addition of the word lecha? So Rashi says, why does it say shlach anoshim? Send men, send scouts, send meraglim. Why does it say lecha? So Rashi says, Hashem says, I need loy I'm not commanding you. Lecha, ledaitecha. You're doing it at your own initiative. Which immediately should have aroused concern by Moshe Rabbeinu. Kola kula, God tells him exactly what to do. 
He never says, L'cha, I'm not telling him what to do. Do it up, it's up to you. As soon as he heard that, he should have right away raised a red flag and say something's wrong. And indeed, what is the reason that suddenly lachlach lachlach? And that itself is a command of God. It doesn't say Moshe came up with an idea. It says God told him, do it at your initiative. What does that mean? And a few more questions just to make the plot thicken. If indeed there was such a terrible thing that you would imagine that this shouldn't be done again. And yet we find in the Haftarah of this week, Yeshua sends Meraglim again when he's about to enter the promised land. Why was he not concerned after he saw what happened? And Moshe again also sends Meraglim in the next week's Pasha, Chukas. So what's going on here? And above all, Teira Melosh Nehera. Teira, the application. Apply Teira. Apply Tchsidis. Applying Teira to our lives. What is the application to our personal lives? And the answer briefly, which is a summation of the Maimot of Chsidis, both in Lukuta Teira and the other Rabbeim, and of course, as all seen through the lens and the explanations of the Rebbe, is that this was not just a small event. It's an event that's a lesson and a directive, timely, a timeless directive to all of us. But first, let's begin with the actual story. They were going to scout out the land, as the Ramban says, because that's the way. You don't rely on miracles. Before you go conquer a land that's inhabited by others, especially people who were sworn enemies, you go and scout out the sea, which is the best way to enter, which is where the weak defenses, the fortresses. The Ramban elaborates beautifully in the beginning of Pasha, this week's Pasha Shlach. So that was the purpose of going. Moshe told them to go in order to scout out the land. He never said to them, come back and tell us whether we can conquer the land. Their great sin, grave sin, was not that they came back with a report, that they came to a conclusion that they were never asked. The shlichus was, figure out how to enter the promised land. The promised land is one promised to Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov. The Eden knew that the whole the years they were in Golos Mitzrayim, they could not wait to go back to their homeland. So now suddenly you're coming and saying, we can't enter. That was not what we were asked for. That was their sin. And how Taka and Noshim Kshedim, such people of stature, on such a level, the heads of tribes can come to such a mistake and make such a sin is because, precisely because of their spirituality and they saw the material world and its challenges, they said, you know, it's much more comfortable to live here in the Midbar. We were protected by the clouds of glory, we get bread from heaven and miraculous water. Why have to enter the marketplace, the stock market, the Wall Street, and all the struggles that one has to deal with in material life? Materialism on a deeper level is more powerful than us. It's much easier to isolate yourself, to live insulated, an ascetic lifestyle. But that's not the kavon. Of course a neshama prefers to live in Gan Eden. And that's why God has to compel it to go down. But it goes. You have to figure out how to accomplish the mission, not whether to accomplish the mission. So that was their grave sin. And it was precisely because of their great heights and their stature that they were sensitive and they said to themselves and convinced other Jews, this is not a place for us, but we will just be overwhelmed and consumed, a land that consumes its inhabitants. Like we see many people enter the material world, it's very difficult, you compromise your values, the corruption, the greed, and everything else that comes a person's way. So why not live in the Kailal, in a base Medish, in the 
secluded in the insulated environment, surrounded by Anani HaKovid. What's the Lecha? The Lecha is because in every person's Aveda, there's God commanding us to do things, but then there's things we need to do on our effort. God said, you enter the promised land. But now you have to do something, and this itself is a command, to use the resources I've given you, your intelligence, to figure out how to enter the land. Not whether, as I just mentioned. And that's why Moshe was not concerned at all. He heard l'cha, he understood very well. Commands were given, now the time has come for us to use our intelligence, our tools, our resources, which we're also blessed with, make sure they're aligned with what God wants us to do. That's part of the yirid. In many ways, it's much more comfortable to stay in a kail and stay in a yeshiva and stay in your mother's womb. There you don't have the l'cha, and you don't have all these concerns. Maybe that itself is what the maraglim did not like the idea of a l'cha. But Meisha understood what the point is. He knew there's a risk. But nevertheless, this is the kavanah. This is the kavanah that God is not going to just walk, hold our hand every moment. We have to use our resources maturely and enter the promised land and figure out the best way to do so. So you have everything here, the whole Seder of Aveda is here. In a way, it's a continuing theme of Balizcha Saneda Shalheva Salem that we spoke about last week. That of such an emphasis in Tayyid Bukhlal and Chsidh specifically in the Rebbe's approach, even more specifically, that what Aveda Bekeyachatzme. That it's not just enough to light a flame, the flame has to rise on its own. Shlach it's not just enough to follow orders. But you have to use your lecha, you have to use your faculties. So the, entering the promised land is the aved of every person. We all have a mission to accomplish and reach our promised land. Promised land, Beruchnius is to sanctify the corner of our world for divine purposes. So we all have that, and we have a journey going there. We go a journey through Midbar Amim. And the journey, we are protected and given resources, but... We have to use our resources to make a dirabitachtenim, to make our home for the, of, for the divine in this material world. And there is, yes, there are risks. So that's why if the bitsugibun eben falpmenishtutin, when you're tied above, you don't fall below. Kolav in Yeshua had keiches, extra keiches. So though they also saw the, fright, the frightful sight of a land that is so powerful that could consume its inhabitants, but they knew that we're going with the keich of something greater. Kayach of the Rebbe, the Kayach of Meshrabin, the Kayach of the Ebishter, that gives us the power to enter there and can fulfill what we were sent to do, which is how, not whether. And that was the great sin because they challenged the very plan itself. The plan is that you have to enter there and you have to figure out how and you have to do it the best possible way, and you have all the Kayachas and all the faculties and resources necessary. So it's a tremendous lesson in life. Each of us are going to face situations where sometimes it seems like Eretz Eichel is Yishver. We may meet difficult people. We live in a hostile world. We sometimes encounter, unfortunately, greed, corruption, and other of the weak human vices that can be so debilitating and demoralizing. And it's very easy to say, you know what, to retreat. I can't do it. I'd rather stay in a more safer environment. But that's not the mission. The mission is absolutely go there, armed with resources. And you don't have to spend 24-7 there. Obviously, there's a Shabbos. There's our childhood when we have our education. But now the time has come to go. You have to figure out how to conquer, how to transform, how to sublimate the material world and turn it into and harness it 
and turn it into a channel for spiritual expression and divine higher consciousness. That is the lesson. And it's a lesson every one of us because whatever we do in life, we are going to encounter impediments, minis v'ikuvim, difficulties, like the Maraglim did. And you don't want to repeat, God forbid, that grave sin, that I can't do it. You can always do it. You have to find the strength and find others that help you with the strength and pray. And yes, go to the Kivrei Ovis or to the oil and other ways that we get, glean and gather strength in order to be able to achieve the primary mission. And when one does, God forbid, what they did, it opens up the door to all the other pchias, the crying, ultimate destruction of the temple even, because it's like saying, we can't do it. Can't do it. There are consequences when a person comes to that conclusion. But let's talk about the positive. And this is what Chassidus came to give us from the Rabbeim, the tools and resources, especially in this last days of Golos. As we come to the Gula to have the ability and the confidence and the resources to know that every situation can be conquered. A lesson right from the beginning of Shlach and generally the general gist of the entire Pasha. Okay. With that, let us go to some questions. And before that, let me make some announcements. This program is community-sponsored. It's a free program. A lot of work goes into it, a lot of research and time and energy. So please help us continue and expand the program. There are many ways that we can expand it by simply making a generous sponsorship, a generous dedication in the, for the, in the honor of a loved one or memory of a loved one simply by going to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. We also have the forum I always announce where you can submit any question. Nothing is off limits. We will try to address every question. There is a backup, but they will be addressed in time. And that is to go to MeaningfulLife.com slash my life. There you have, number one, the forum. You also have an array of resources, including the previous episodes, the archives, as well as essays for the last four years. Now, of course, we're posting the fourth year of uh, the essay contest, which I always review at the end of the program, three new essays. And other materials that you can definitely use and share with others. Uh, at this point, you can search, and every topic that has been addressed is time-stamped on the YouTube videos. So you can really find any topic, almost every topic that we addressed in the last 214 episodes. With that, let us go to some questions, some new questions. And they are, let's start with the first question. Why recite? Well, before I go to that, I always seem to forget. There was a previous programs I want to cross-reference to the archives where I spoke about Shlach, episode 70, 120, and 166. And now to the question. Why recite a Maimar Chassidus when most people don't understand? And here's how the writer writes it, unfiltered, uncensored. The boring Maimar time after Mincha on Shabbos. Referring to a custom that's in the yeshivas and the many shuls, Chassidus shuls, Chabad shuls, where someone, they sing some Nigunim, uh, after Mincha, between Mincha and Maimar on Shabbos, and the longer, uh, the, when it's longer nights, or the shorter when Shabbos starts earlier, the minig is to do it on Friday evening. Some do it both. The, so there's, and then someone chazes a maimer sometimes, a ba'yemaledes, or someone else chazes a maimer. So this person is referring to the boring maimer time after Mincha Shabbos. Is there a point in meaning in the veteran Chabad minig of saying a maimer in shul after Mincha in a way that between me and you, no one is able to follow and understand? 
Okay, now it's no longer between me and you because I've announced it now for the thousands of viewers and it's out there now in cyberspace. That's my addition. It was a recent Hayyem Yem that mentioned something about the Neshama understanding the words of Chassidus. Is this L'Chathchila or B'Diyavet? Meaning, the Neshama understands, L'Chathchila means that that's, that's what we have to rely on. Or is that a backup in case we don't understand it? So we say at least the Neshama understands. That's what this questioner is asking. Should Chassidus be taught in a way that warrants and demands an exclusive Neshama understanding? What happened to Chabad and understanding? Chabad as in Chachma bin Adas. What about our Nefesh Abam is getting on board? Of course, Chassidus talks about that as well. The animals are also appreciating. This leads to more of a general question. And we'll get to that in the second question. So let me just respond to this question. Very good question, and I'm glad you asked it, even though it's irreverent, and some people say, why chutzpah to challenge a meaning that the Rabbeim instituted, a meaning that Chassidim do, and beautiful minig, people cut together, they sing Nugunim, it's a Heseridus, my Mechsidus. But nevertheless, you ask the question, and maybe other people ask the same question. The question really can be brought not just to the Mincha minig, but also in general learning Chassidus and not feeling you understand, which we'll soon discuss as more at length. You could also say it about Teir in general. People learn Gemara and they don't feel they understand. So the question can be broadened in general. People daven and they don't feel they understand davening. So what's going on here? Are we just doing things mechanically? We're just relying on the miracle that Neshama will understand? So let me begin from the top. From the top. Let's start like this. First of all, yes, the Neshama does understand. So even if you don't always physically understand it with your mind and with your... Uh, with your uh, just because it's done in a way where, where uh, people don't understand it, that doesn't mean it's right. So the meaning, even if you didn't understand, I wouldn't stop it because God forbid, when you say holy words of the Rabbeim, just like you say holy words of davening, you're saying words that have power. And they have power to affect the Neshama, and they have power to affect the Beruchnias, and Sheda Shenyanim, as Chassidus explains. But the Kavana is absolutely, so say a Maimon, and get someone to say a Maimon in a way that people do understand. I've been to Maimonim that have been said by people, beautiful to hear, explaining it. Just because it's this way it's done, this doesn't mean it has to be done this way. So the absolute reason to do this is absolutely to do it the right way. Same thing in yeshiva. We're going to talk about it some more in a moment, about learning and studying. But the same thing is in yeshiva. When you're learning chassidus, you can learn in a way that's just mechanical, lip service, or you can learn in a way that's gishmak and meridik. You find a number of sikhs where the Rebbe says, how could someone not have Gishmak and Chassidus? So some people say, they learn and they don't understand it. It's not being taught right. There's a famous expression, Imreku Mikemhu. If there's a problem, it's not coming from, from the, the, the source, God forbid. It's coming from the way we are learning it. So this is a challenge. This is exactly one of the reasons I do my life, Chassidus Applied, is to bring out the richness of Chassidus, that we should all appreciate it that way. And Taylor in general. So that's the answer to the question. And absolutely never Shabbamish should understand it. So that's our challenge. Let's put our heads together and figure out how to chazam amodim in a way that's understandable and how to do it in a way that people can appreciate and, and fully, fully uh, benefit from it and apply it to their lives. Now obviously when you chazam amaymer, there's the element of chazam amaymer that... 
just the, 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 as I said, the words of the Rabbeim themselves have value. What's the value? Because the words have that, that type of power. But there's no, there's no sudden to have that plus an understanding and, rela- and relating it to our lives. So in Maimir, you want to stick to the original. It's not a time to explain the Maimir. But that doesn't mean it can be said in a beautiful way, in a way that does have some explanation, at least the pshat of it, and said in a way, even in the language, that people can relate to and understand. So that's my response to that. Now, that leads to the second question that you asked, and that second question is, what, in, what is in essence the difference between a sicha and a maimer? Or is there a difference? A maimer is known as divri alikim chaim, right? The words of the living God. Now, the Rebbe once wrote to someone that uh, when you write, for example, you write uh, the divri alikim chaim, then you write nigla, it doesn't make sense because nigla is also divri alikim chaim. Is that chassidus is used as divri alikim chaim, but not chaz v'sholem to minimize that other parts in Torah are not from the living God, just as a footnote. But the maimer is known as divri alikim chaim, correct? And as such, it is a... Um, As such, it has the particular power that we say, the famous story, which means the Shekhinah speaks through the throat of the Rebbe as he's saying the Maimah, the Divrei Lekim Chaim, the famous story. Well, let me continue reading your letter and then I'll tell the story. Is every word of a Sikh or Ksavyad not the words of a Rebbe who's also referred to as an Isha Lekim? Isn't a Sikh also the words of the Rebbe? Also channeling these words. We know that the Rabbeim spoke in a different tone when saying a maimer than the regular form of speech that was used when saying a sicha. Number one, why? Why was there this different tone? But that's all the Rebbe's, but that's all Rebbe ideas, which I don't need to really understand. Fine, but the bigger question to me is this difference of tone, one that Chassidim must adapt to as well. Does a maimer and shul after mincha need to be said in this seemingly non-inviting tone? When the Rebbe spoke so much about the idea of hakolos kihilas, which is gathering people together, Kehillah's community, on Shabbos and Chazim Chassidus in shuls in a time of Raiva Deraivin, which is Shabbos afternoon, is this what the Rebbe meant? If yes, how come I never came across a Labavit Shabbachar, a younger man, get up in a Williamsburg borough park, flap a shul and start singing the Maimon tune and talking about Ak and Kesser, and which is higher? Anyway, I think you get the point of this question. Extremely looking forward to get clarity on this. So let's talk a moment about that and I'll go back to the original question and elaborate a bit more. And that is following. So, in looking up this difference between a sikh and a maimer, I recall a letter from the Rebbe, and if anybody knows exactly where it is, I'd really appreciate you telling me. I looked at it, try to look for it. Where the Rebbe says that both obviously come from a Rebbe, but one is formal and one is informal. Formal means, as we know, Maimer is said with a particular nigin, chsidim rise and listen to the Maimer, the Rebbe takes a tichel and ties it, which means there's a hamshachas alakus going on in a formal way. A sikh is in a way of the record conversation about chsidis or teda or other parts of teda and so on. Now, does that mean they're both obviously coming from a Rebbe? But the Rebbe writes in one Yud-Bez Tammuz, I believe, in Tovshin Yud Gimel. Yeah, the Rebbe wrote that, Namaimer, you're medayik in words. In a Sikh, you're not medayik, you don't emphasize words. In other words, every word is accounted for. It's similar like the difference in Teresh Shabiksav and Teresh Shabalpeh. So there's Teresh Shabiksav and Teresh Shabalpeh, the written Teresh, every word counts. Now, Teresh Shabalpeh, the words are also precise. 
but you don't have the same level of precision as it is in the written Torah. So in a way, you can compare the two. The Rebbe also has a letter where he writes, and it's in English Kedish, volume 1, page 191, an interesting letter where he talks about uh, a sikha from the Friedrich Rebbe, and he says, in the sikha, what, what's in a sikha that's not in a maimer, is that besides the fact that you have the esrig and the lulav, which is... Um, which become beautified, but also the hadas and the rava, even people who are, don't have any teda or mitzvahs, you could also have an influence on them. In other words, the sikh is more compatible and more conducive to present to others. A maimah can be sometimes a little too difficult or a little more on a higher, loftier level. But you need both. You need the gdusha of a maimah and you need the so-called sikha, bringing it down, making it more accessible is the right word I should say. And they both work hand in hand. So that's in that letter. And as I said, there's more material on this. I believe that in the Yem Yem, the Rebbe speaks about his kashas, he says, to learn a maimer and to read a sikha. So there is a difference. It's not relevant, I believe, to our discussion here, except in this context. A maimer said, that's why we chazer a maimer, by mitzvah maimer, we chazer word for word exactly as the Rebbe said it, as the Friedrich Rebbe said it, and as the Rebbe Rashab said it. Same thing with the chasen a maimer. Because there's an union of carrying and saying the words exactly as they were given. Then there's an union of explaining those words. And that's an additional element. And it's not a contradiction one to the other, as I explained before. Now, the best would be if you chazer the maimer and you use words to explain it to help, at least, I'm not, again, I'm not talking about a havana, a whole beer, a pilpul in it. I'm talking about the minimum to explain in a way that allows someone to at least appreciate the points. And a maimer could be said that way, and we should be training ourselves and our students to say it that way. I did, speak of, I did discuss the bar mitzvah maimer um, in episode 202 in this context as well. So that's a cross-reference. Good. Now, I want to say the story with Rab Hillel, Paracha was once sitting at the table at Samach Tzedek, and they were being mafalpal, they were discussing and analyzing the maimer that the Samach Tzedek said. And there was a, a certain issue that they had issues with, and they had a disagreement. Rabbi Samach Sadiq explained it one way, then Rabbi Hill explained it a different way. So someone said, Rabbi Hill, this is the Rebbe, who, who? He said this Maimer. How can you argue with him? Besides that, he's the Rebbe, he's also said the Maimer. He said, when he said the Maimer, Rabbi Hill responded, it was Kinsinos and Messinai. That was Messinai. Now we're talking the Seichel of it. And here we're all Bifalpul. So when Moshe comes down from Har Sinai, I'm explaining, he brings Dvar Hashem, Zuhalacha, this exactly is what David said. But then the Ebrister told me you should be mafalpul that you should be able to have a Bezdin, you should have a Sanhedrin that discusses a topic and you could argue Mem Test him 49 ways this way and 49 ways this way and have a consensus. So there's two parts to Teirah. There's the Teirah as it's given from heaven. That's like a Maimach Siddis. So there you can't come and say, I have a different opinion on the Maimach Siddis. That's the way it was given. That's the way it was recited with all the formalities. A Sikha you can say is also coming from the Rebbe, but a sikha is a more of an informal presentation. And as such, it has an element, you can say there's more seichel in it. Now obviously, when the Rebbe says a sikha, we also defer to the Rebbe's sikha. It's not suggesting that we can argue. But in concept, you're not dealing with a pure, let's put it, unfiltered flow channeled from above. You're, it's already coming down in a way that is, as I said, more informal, more explanatory, and so on. When we worked in the Sikhs and Mamorim, of course, we asked questions on both of them. But the questions were not, God forbid, a disagreement. The questions were just points of clarity. Just wanted to add that point. So, 
bottom line is, we are blessed with chassidus. Chassidus has an element of a kedusha saesius, and there's an element like we learn tanya balpeh, the letters themselves, and then there's explaining. And we really need both. The reason you need the first one, because that brings you, Chassidus explains, that's a reflection of the divine, so getting a gili, unfiltered gili from the source. The reason you need the second is because you want to internalize it and integrate it in our lives. If you only had the second, you wouldn't have the gili mamayla. Like Chassidus says, I'm shachem mamayla mata, for instance, and tefillah. Shachem mamayla mata has the value that is coming down from above, so it has in its intensity, you're having a divine revelation. Tefillah, on the other hand, is initiated from below when we have bakoshes tzrach of apiteda, when you have a need. So it doesn't have that intensity, but it has the internalization. It's much more yours. The lecha, the shlach lecha is stronger, the lecha. On the other hand, on the other hand, the same th- and, and the same thing can be said in the in the pure Gdusha says is, is, has that gili momayla. That's strength. But the, the advantage of having something internal, that comes when you explain it. And I don't see any reason. Not only no reason, we are commanded, shlach lecha, both, to learn what's said and then explain it and internalize that. When you chazer it, chazer with some type of gishmag that you're actually influencing people in a way that they actually appreciate it. The Alter Rebbe, famous story with the Alter Rebbe, that when he was said to the Teda in Shklov, and he felt that it wasn't resonating with them. He said, okay, that only a nigan could pierce their hearts. Now, why, why didn't the tater itself? Because the tater could be sometimes a mile lamat that's coming from the top down. And a song pierces something like tefillah, pierces you where you are, and it can touch somebody in a completely different way. And you really need a combination of both elements. So generally it's tater and tefillah, specifically more tater shabiksav and tater shabalpeh, the written and the oral Torah, and it could be also Chassidus, there's the written, which is the Maimed itself, and there's the oral, the way we explain it and we discuss it and uh, present it and apply it to our lives. Next question. This one, so the person who writes, writes with sensitivity, says, Schedule of Temchet Mimim. Is our yeshiva system what we learn, how we learn, when we learn, based on the Rebbe's guidelines. If so, what can we do if it isn't working for many of our students? Please don't discuss this on your program, the fellow writes, unless you strongly think it's the right thing to do. I don't want to take any responsibility for this. I will speak about it because it's a very relevant topic. So exactly as I just read, is our yeshiva system, what we learn, how we learn, when we learn, based on the Rebbe's guidelines, is so what can we do if it isn't working for many of our students? So first let me give you some cross-reference. I've discussed this in the past, and that is in episodes 24 through 26, episode 52, 63, 68 through 70, 72, and 93. Just to show you how, the, how relevant this topic is and how it keeps coming up, because obviously it affects us all. All of us going through the school systems affects our children, affects the future generations, especially in our challenging times. But with that, I will also address another question that came in. Why did the Rebbe not intervene to improve our yeshiva system? And the writer writes, the following topic is really a painful one. I'm not going to write to you the challenges I find in the mainstream system of yeshivas today. I'm not going to cry out about the the 70% of today's precious youth, youth which aren't being catered to in our dozens of beautiful institutions. 
I hope you are willing to choose not to live in denial and accept the tragic fact as it is. Do I need to illustrate what I'm talking about? My question is, is this all from the Rebbe? When I speak to others about this, I'm immediately attacked. Are you challenging the Rebbe's system? I want to know, is this indeed the Rebbe's system? Is the fact that 90% of yeshivas today run on 90% of the same schedule and curriculum clearly not captivating and inviting for our today's neshamas? Is this something which the Rebbe created and pushed for? If yes, how are we to understand such a phenomenon? If no, is there anything what we as parents can do about this? Until then, what is to be our message to our children? We can obviously not tell them that the system is corrupt. We, we have to always we take the side of the establishment. So what can we tell them? My son is finishing a sift in two years. He's going to start looking to choose a Zal, based Medrash. Rabbi Jacobson, where am I to send him? To me, his question sounds like Tati. In which yeshiva will I experience less pain and suffering? The real problem is that this is a subject which we, never, which we may never talk about because when it removes the responsibility of the, uh, uh, of the Bokhah's shoulders, as if he need not work till the Hanhole gets their act together, which is why I worry if this is a question you will feel comfortable addressing altogether. Is there clear directives from the Rebbe regarding the actual structure and schedule of the yeshiva? Did the Rebbe say that Seydach Siddhis must be an hour and a half in the morning and at night and a whole day of intense learning schedule? Does the curriculum need to be about concepts these boys don't know anything about, definitely not care about? There's a limit how long a Talmud can enjoy reading about Ak, Kesed, and which is higher. So if you want to explain these concepts in a clear and meaningful way, go for it. But if not, then maybe they should learn a Sikha or is that also during Seder Chassidus? Okay. I read them exactly, I read the, the questions exactly as they were written, and I don't not uh, retreat or hesitate doing so, because I believe the answer is even better than the question. And this is not my answer, this is coming from Sikhs and letters from the, Rebbe, from the Rebbe, and based on the fundamentals, what bothers me, and this is not, I don't, God forbid, the question is a legitimate question. I've heard it from many people. Many, many people. But I'll tell you what really bothers me, and I speak now just from my own heart personally. The assumption bothers me. It's the same thing we spoke before about the mimer being boring. I understand that's your experience. I understand that we, many of us have experienced negative experiences in the yeshiva, or our children have. But why are we suggesting that that's what the Rabbeim intended? Isn't that a given that a Rebbe who's a rei Yisrael, a shepherd of Israel, a Moshe Rabbeinu, cares about every Jew, and the Rabbeim set up systems. Isn't it obvious or given that they set up systems in order for us to be the best we can be? Chaz Shalom, a corrupt system or, or a not appropriate system or not fitting? Wouldn't this basic menschlichkeit to appreciate, even if it was a regular person, that, you, that cares about you, that they're doing something because they're doing it, this is what they think is the best thing for us? I, the fact that you experience this, the answer is very simple. Maybe it's not being done the way that Rabbein wanted. That which you suggest, but isn't that the obvious direction to go? To me, it's a given that's the way it is. Or else the whole point, God forbid, to suggest otherwise. What's the whole point of speaking about Chassidus and the Rabbein if God forbid they didn't get it right? I'm just saying that God forbid just as a an expression is just playing devil's advocate. 
So it's an absolute given that the system, the way the Rebbe Rashab set up Timchit Mimim and the Friedrich Rebbe implemented and the Rebbe continued are holy, holy, and that's the way it is. And it could be done in the best possible way. Yes, learning one and a half hours chassidus in the morning and one in the evening, one and a half in the evening, and all in between. There's a say that when the Rebbe, when they established Beit Sefer Lamalacha in Kfar Chabad, and they asked the Rebbe that they wanted it to be under Temchid Mim and Temchid Mim, the Rebbe said it has to be separate. Because Temchid Mim was established the way that Abayim established it. It would be like someone saying, you know, we live in the 21st century, and the way the Tater was given 3,330 years ago, it's a different world. Yes. That's applying the Tera in, in modern times, but never changing the fundamentals. There's a mitzvah sessor to learn Tera. Shlish Mikra, Shlish Mishnah, Shlish Gemara, etc. There's all kinds of guidelines. There's guidelines that also accommodate Chanechel, Narapidake, different students in different ways. Here's not the place to go into a thorough discussion. But we have an Eisen brick. We have an iron, a, a solid and unwavering bridge to stand on. Teda in general, and the Rabbeim in particular, which is built on Teda. What we have to do is make sure it comes alive for our students. So all the statements you make of children, not, students not being able to follow, being bored, not understanding, that's because it's not being taught right. And we have to just state that for the record. And if indeed it's not being taught the right way, then it's not we're going to go change the system. Let's for argument's sake, you know, a human being needs to eat and sleep. And you start eating and sleeping, you're being fed by people who are giving you, they're feeding you toxic food, God forbid. Junk food. And, there's, and, and your sleeping habits are unhealthy. So what are you going to say? I'm not going to sleep, I'm not going to eat. You say, no, let me f- learn from somebody who knows how to eat, who knows how to suggest how to, proper hygiene, proper diet, proper exercise. The same thing here. Tedes chayenu It's our life and our sustenance. This is the greatest gift. It's a gift that actually provides us with a full comprehensive blueprint for living. Psychological, emotional, spiritual, dealing with every detail, which is the whole basis of this program. As the Alter Rebbe says in the introduction to Tanya, you say, well, I don't see it. So, hafachba, hafachba. Turn it and turn it until you find it. Imreiku, if you're empty and you don't see it, mekem, it's from you the emptiness. Not a critique. It means you need to find the right teachers. But to suggest, let's go back to the story of the Meraglin. What was the chet of the Meraglin? Not that they came back with a bad report, with a report saying that it's challenging. They came to a conclusion, we can't do it. This attitude, this tone, that we pick up our hands like victims, what could we do? If it's the Rebbe system, okay, too light, too bad. I, you know, it's a terrible system, but it's the Rebbe system. If it's not the Rebbe system, then what do we do? The answer is it's absolutely the system of the Rabbeim. System meaning, I'm talking about when to learn and how to learn and what to learn. The point of the fact that no one, no one size fits all. It's not a cookie cutter model, which is unfortunately part of the situation. Different students, different needs. And that's an obvious thing. However, we're not going to go change the whole system because some students, let's say, cannot follow. That's where you have to have good mashpiyim, Good Rosh Hashivas, good educators, good Mechanchim, who recognize that a student may be a little slow or another student may be too fast, and recognize how we can cu- customize and tailor the teachings that work for the student. Obviously, absolutely, that's necessary. However, that doesn't mean you go change the system. Just going back to the example of hygiene and diet, 
We all have to eat. Sometimes a person may need special diet for whatever, supplement and so on. That's part of the system itself. The Rebbe told once Abacha that in every yeshiva established in Temchet Pim, there should be too much Pim. Because Ein Dei saying Shavu, students are different, and therefore they can't always, different students relate to different Mashpiyim. So he said, choose a Mashpiyim and stick with him. Don't go to someone else once you get, choose him. So obviously we all need that type of customization. So that's the bottom line. The bottom line is the system is a, is a system that Abayim set up and it has all the flexibility and all the latitude necessary to customize it for every particular situation. As I mentioned before, the different episodes where I address this as well, that complements and supplements what I've just said. Why did the Rebbe not intervene? I would say it's a shlach lecha, ledaitacha approach. I can't speak for the Rebbe, I can only speculate. The Rebbe cared, obviously, for every person, for every child, for every student. You see, the Rebbe's focus on education, the yeshiva system for boys and girls. But the Rebbe, shlach lecha, there's a time when he needs a lecha. And the Rebbe was not going to intervene in every particular case, especially as the yeshiva system blossomed. It's one thing in the early Nesias, in general the Rebbe was more hands-on because the people were less. But more importantly, for sustainable purposes, you need to be able to allow people to have that strength where they develop tools. Where the Rebbe could intervene in general terms, he did. But in a specific way, as much as it was difficult and probably painful for the Rebbe, Exercise and restraint ultimately create a situation where we have to address our issues and our challenges and go back and forth to ourselves and be able to do that in a way that really applies it and tailors it, as I said before, and in place that can look at the situation. The Rebbe says many times, You can't solve a problem from a distance. You can give general guidelines, but the issues have to be addressed each particular place according to its particular needs. So yes, this is the restraint of every parent and every good leader, where there's shalheva se'elamei you want the student to be able to stand on his own feet. So as difficult as it was for the Rebbe to go and spoon feed and babysit and hold our hands, to some extent, to the beginnings, but not on an ongoing basis. That's my way of explaining this point. Okay, next question. Next question is... How to understand the seeming paradox? Is the main focus today on Kabbalah sale or on, or, or on making Chassidus understandable and relevant? So here's the paradox. Teichen A, one point. In our generation when there is this phenomenon of Nismaito HaMeichen V'Alavavis, in our generation when there's a time of when there's a diminishment in people's intellect and heartfeltness and heart... In other words, in their evolved state. The main focus now is on Maisebapel with Pshittis and Kabbalah sale. That's what we're taught. The main focus is on just following what you're told, the Kabbalah sale, accepting Nasev and Ishma, accepting it without having to understand it all and, and processing it all in detail. On the other hand, Teichen B, we hear, we hear another expression that goes like this. Everything Exodus is relevant today, more than ever. The giving out a kuntaset chaim in Nunalaf, when the Rebbe gave it out in Tavshin Nunalaf, where the Rebbe Rashab teaches how Ava Viyira is Leiba Shamayimhi, how love and awe is not in heaven, and a shaykh and, re- and relates to everyone. All the Sikhs 51 of Tavshin Nunalaf and Tavshin Nunbez, etc., etc., etc. What are your thoughts? 
Okay, very good question. And it's addressed in a number of sikhs. Just to cite one where you see this idea discussed, and that is the sikha where the Rebbe speaks in Chelik Tezvav, the sikha of Yutas Kislev, two reasons why Chassidus was revealed in the later generations. One, because the darkness was deeper, so you need a greater gilir, light, to counter the darkness. You need the king's, the most precious stone of the king, the, the mashal of the Alter Rebbe, to be crushed to, to perhaps save the child that's ill in the coma. On the other hand, Mashiach is like Erev Shabbos, right before the Gula, you have a taste of the great revelations that will come when Mashiach comes, which is Primus Atere, Teres Achsidis. So, seemingly contradiction. They're like opposite reasons. Says the Rebbe, no. Because Habahatai, it's interdependent. Why? Because right before the dawn is the darkest. So in order to give strength to deal with the darkest, that's exactly what happens. To give the strength in the darkest time, you get the greatest gili, which is right before the gula. You could say a similar thing here. It is true, on one hand, it's ikfasa the Mashiach. Ikfasa means the heal. We don't have the neshamas, the high neshamas that were there with the, by Matan Teira, the neshamas later by the Beis Rishon, Beis Rishon, Beis Sheni. It's much lower. But we also are, so on one hand, it's much lower neshamas, and therefore Kabbalah sailors are main Aveda, like he says in the Maimar of Basilagani. As I discussed a few weeks ago. On the other hand, however, we stand on the shoulders of giants. So we have all their gilim and we're on the threshold of the gula. So we also have a tremendous gili and there's a revelation of chassidus like never before. The maimodim that the Rebbe said. How the Rebbe Rashab, the Fidik Rebbe, the Rebbe explained chassidus in ways that chassidim of the Alter Rebbe never heard. So you see there's a tremendous gili. You'll say, how does it fit? Both are necessary. One, if you talk mitzad primi adam, we are not on that level of understanding perhaps. When you talk about the intensity of the revelation, we have even more than there was there before. And both are respected from us. Kabbalah says, you don't wait till you internalize it all. But at the same time, we have today tools to explain chassidus and apply chassidus in ways that we've never had before. As the Rebbe says, when the Friedrich Rebbe translated Chassidus into other languages, it wasn't just physical translation, it was taking Chassidus and making it accessible and applicable to modern times, as the Rebbe especially did. I, they didn't have that before. Firstly, they may not have needed it quite. They saw it from above, like the Rishenim saw things that the Chreinim didn't. Mishnah, the Tanoim saw it in the Mishnah, and the Tanoim needed Gemara. So which one is it? Who understands more? So they understood it as a gili milmaila, the higher neshamas. Today it's milmata, but much more lamata, so it's much more internalized and more integrated, and therefore it's consistent with the Kabbalah cell, because we may not have all the, like you said, we don't have quite that type of level of, of, as it was then. But we have all their strengths plus what we can add in our times. Okay. With that, let us go now to some follow-up. Follow-up to last few weeks, 2.13 and 2.14. So first of all, the first follow-up question is this. Novel B'Rishus Hi, Rabbi Jacobs. You mentioned in your last few classes the concept of novel disgusting B'Rishus Yes, this is an expression from the Ramban at the beginning of Parshag Deshim, where the Ramban says, someone who's despicable, a novel, B'Rishus He's doing it with like Rishus HaTeri. He finds Teira to justify it, which of course is even worse when you do it. 
I don't understand that statement. If the Torah allows something, then it's not disgusting, as it says, its ways are pleasant. And if something is disgusting, it's not from the Torah. So please explain. Very good question. The answer, obviously, going back again to Mikemhu, we all have free will. When the Torah says to do something, then obviously it's not despicable, God forbid, it's the opposite. It's the best, it's the, it's the, it's the method that makes us be the best we can be, to be aligned with exactly the way the creator and designer and engineer of life wants us to be. However, a person has free will. Free will means you can choose not to follow Tater, God forbid. You can choose something even worse. To, to use Tater to justify your own despicable behavior. So it's not that Tater Chaz Shalom is that. Tater is not even Makabal Tuma, actually. Tater does not absorb impurities. But a person can portray, for example, a person can be, you look at the person and they, they project themselves as a God-fearing person, as a rabbi, as a chassid, as a teacher, and so on. And then they do something to hurt somebody. And they even find ways in Tater to say it was justifiable. It's not that Tater is justifiable. That person is finding a way. But it's Tater. Like I remember somebody coming to me once and saying to me, where is it saying the Tater and the Rebbe Sichas that a wife has to listen to her husband? And I saw he was troubled. So I say, how do you know it says that? He says, because I know it says it. And I saw from what he was saying, I say, but my understanding, it says in Shulchan Aruch, uh, a person, a husband, should honor his wife more than himself. He started yelling and screaming at me. So I saw he was trying to find a tater source to justify his own mishagasin, or his own, uh, his own cruelty. That's the vart. It's not that the tater, God forbid, can be despicable. It could be a person looking, you could distort something, and use it like a stick. It says, oh, the tater says you have to punish someone. Let's go punish him. That's the point. Now, how could the Tater be used that way? The Tater came down the Mata, and as the Alter Rebbe says, Nosa from the high level, attacking Lamail and Shamayim and higher, the highest levels. Tater, of course, is pure Gedusha. And here, when it comes down, it's also pure Gedusha, but the Tater itself is mislabish, as the Alter Rebbe explains in the Geras Akedus 26. That's why Nigla the Tater is called Eitz Hadas Tevera. He says, How could you be called Nigla Tevera? Because it deals with tevera. It deals with people who argue. Arguments, lies. The Gemara talks about people who steal, people who cheat. Not because the tater, God forbid, the tater is addressing that. So when the tater addresses it, the tater itself has manifested itself in a world that has to deal with criminal activity as well. And, and, and that includes, of course, the tater being also vulnerable in a certain way that a person can take tater and turn it into a samovis. If you use the tater the wrong way. The tater always remains pure. And halavai, it says, the luminary in tater will bring him back to good. Ultimately, it will affect him. But meanwhile, a person, God forbid, can schlep tater all the way, just like he schlep God all the way into, into the worst places. So that's the answer to that question. Next question. My teenage friends are drowning. What can we do? Follow up to 213, 214. I'll just read a few comments on that. I won't read them all because of time. And I want to... Yeah, teenage friends rounding that. That teacher who didn't know what to do. So I spoke about a teacher who said, I know the problem, but I don't know what to do. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. I am that teacher who wrote the comment that got so much flack and even made it onto your broadcast this week. We know 
We just don't know what to do. And you suggested I shouldn't be teaching. Well, I didn't exactly suggest, put it that way. I said, um, not firstly, I wasn't being personal. I was saying somebody who's in a role to teach and to influence students and they can't do it, maybe they have to look at whether they're the right person. Anyway, let me read this letter and then I'll respond. I want to clarify this teacher writes that I regret writing it because it was so deeply misunderstood. What I was trying to say is that this girl shouldn't feel that we are oblivious and she should know that we care and are searching for answers. It was written out of exasperation. Exasperation. I want to say that people have a very unfair attitude toward teachers. I'm not a mashpir or magadshir. I'm an afternoon English teacher but it's still so painful to watch what my students are going through. I do everything you suggested, but do you think it's really enough? Do you think I could sleep at night after reading this article? I am always trying, always asking for advice, reading up on it, giving it tons of thought every day, but we are up against a very great tide, and it's hard to reach every student. We need your help. To say we should just quit, to crush our spirits and write us off, offline, like, off like that, that's how you cause bigger problems. You have no clue how much work and care we put into our students. How can you assume otherwise? Why would we be teaching if we didn't? I know it's cool to bash the establishment. You need to realize that some of us aren't ignorant and oblivious. We are just being honest. It would be dishonest to say we had the answers. If we did, this community would be a very different place. We are, ready, really, we are really trying, and if you can't give us credit, at least don't put us down publicly. Thank you. Okay, I apologize because I accept what you're writing. I did not in any, any way, God forbid, in any way try to suggest that a teacher with good intentions, as you're writing, is not doing the best they can. I was talking about the whole picture, and I wasn't talking about anyone individually. So I'm not going to justify it if it was taken that way, but let's make it clear. I am trying to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, meaning trying to talk about suggestions of how we can put our heads together. There are some teachers that are very capable of being a mashpi and addressing issues. Some teachers, maybe just more teachers. But I think everyone, even if you're an English teacher who may not have all the skills, you may be able to notice things. You may have certain students that respond to you and not to others. So let's get beyond any criticism and pointing fingers. That is all not the goal. That's not the goal of any of my programs, of any of my words. And if it was taken that way, as I said, I stand corrected. I absolutely do not mean it that way. We're trying to be productive. What can be done? Now, there may be teachers that are not competent. There may be teachers that actually hurt students. I've heard that too. I'm not going to determine that on the show like this without knowing the details. And more importantly, this has to be addressed by the anhola, by the faculty. Now, if there is a teacher like that, you know something? Sometimes you have to take, be strong because if the teacher is hurting students, that needs to be addressed. I just want to make that point clear. But I'm definitely not going to accuse anyone without knowing who we're talking about. I'm speaking in general terms that we have much work to do and we can address our students' needs. I'm very glad to hear you writing this. It shows that sincerity. It shows you care. It shows you stay up at night. And that's beautiful because I think that goes a long way. Caring is even more than competence. What do I mean by competence? You may not be trained to address every problem, but caring is the first step because you're caring. You can direct a student where to go, to whom to go. So that's my response to that. There's some more comments, but I'm going to go to one more about music. Well, I'll go to two, two more. Um, a different generation. Although I consider myself an old lady, 59, I can say with certainty that your advice could have applied many generations ago too. I am so impressed with your gentle but firm approach. I wish someone would have given me the time of day. 
Although I stayed with the program, I know, I know, although I stayed with the program, I know that if only one person took an interest in my life, in me and my life, my life would have been much, in, in me, sorry, it took an interest in me, my life would have been much better. Please, all the people in Chinuch, listen. You want the children to listen. You listen to them. Thank you. Another person writes, from the 30-minute mark of last week's program, response to the system is broken. You should present the solution instead of saying we're, saying we're in la-la land. The solution has already begun with new schools, seminaries, etc. opening up. Rumors fly about newer schools from those employed in the old system, but the results will speak for themselves. Okay. Another person writes back to that teacher who wrote what I just read. Not true. I know of a school where the principal took it seriously and is talking to every girl. Five girls at the time about this. That is a caring principal. And then someone writes about the music lessons I addressed, which was, someone submitted a letter last week about the futility of teaching from kids music. The letter had a very pessimistic tone, and I couldn't disagree more. I grew up in a firm family with 10 kids, Kenan Hara. Baruch Hashem, over half of us have taken some kind of music or singing lessons at some point in our lives. It was a value of our parents to expose us to music, even though our school didn't have a music program. Most from schools don't. Are any of us musicians as a career? Not necessarily. Are all of us still playing and, practically, and practicing diligently today? Not necessarily either. But I can say that each of us has gained from it in our own way. Music is a great idea for Yeshiva Bachim or anyone to have a creative outlet within Torah, and it shouldn't be put down. I think yeshivas in general have to be more open-minded about letting the students have more opportunities to be creative or learn a skill. Okay. There were some more uh, follow-ups, which I will continue in later weeks. Let me go to the Siddhis question now. Parsois. Parsois is a concept in Kabbalah and Chassidus. It literally means partitions or separators or curtains or veils or shrouds or filters. All those are correct. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Can you please explain the concept of Parsois and Chassidus, its sources and its relevance to our lives? Sure. So firstly, the concept of Parsois is uh, in Zohar. We'll start with the sources. And it refers to the parsa, the first parsa that's mentioned in the Torah is right in the beginning of Chumash. It separates. A firmament that separates between the higher waters and the lower, lower waters. Between land, the Hamavdil. So that's the first, the Havdola, that's a parsa. The Zaya talks about it in the levels in, in, in higher than Atzilis, between Atik and Zah, and many other levels which I'll discuss momentarily. There are other places, of course, in Zaya that discusses it. And then, of course, in Kisver Rizal, you also have the Parsois, as well as in Ramak and the Pardis. So Kabbalah, this is a fundamental principle of Parsois. Let's put it into simplest English, and then I'll explain a little more of Pichsidis. Look at the human structure. The best teacher is always the human being and nature, because that's what God created. And it's reflected, from my flesh I behold God, by looking at nature we can understand the divine hand and engineer that created this, because it's the design of the divine, you're understanding the mind of God. And it reflects the whole Seder Ishtalshlis and the spiritual levels as well, that's what the structure of existence. What is the structure of existence? It's a very intricate structure, many details, in general, you have the concept of Adis and Kalim. What is that? Energy in a container. Vision in an eye. Hearing in an ear. 
the power to write in your fingers, intelligence in your brain, emotions in your heart, Aid and Kaylee. But then there's another element in every structure starting from the body, and those are the, we'll call them the separators, the membranes. There are membranes in the brain. There are membranes that separate the different parts of the brain. There are membranes that separate intellect from emotions, the metzragar in the throat. There's a membrane called the diaphragm, chotzer hakovid, separates between the lungs and the intestines. Membranes everywhere. What is membranes? Membranes partitions. Maybe a better word, because not everywhere is it a membrane. A partition means the structure, every structure has walls and doors and filters and gauges and valves. Just like when you put food down your throat, there's a point when your air pipe will close. As the process is down, there's the digestive organs open up. The same thing with the blood circulating and the nervous system. So when we look at machines, you'll see that not just is there a flow, but there's also gauges and valves that control the flow and regulate the flow. Those are the parsois in the human structure and in nature. It's a parsois that separates land from water. There's parsois that separate the sky, the atmospheres, the different atmospheres, the ozone layers, and so on. Layers, they're all parsois. What is it in Ruchnius? In Ruchnius parsois, in order to create structure, so besides the fact that God created many levels, which are dimensions, there has to also be these partitions that allow one dimension to, to turn into another dimension. Like he says in Teira Eir, which is one of the first places in the Chassidus that talks about the Pas in Teira Eir and Baimer, Pasachaliyo and Vayera. You can look it up 14b, 14b and on. He says there that a Parsa is necessary whenever there's a paradigm shift from one paradigm to another, from Moichin to Midis, intellect to emotions. You need a parsa. When things are just flowing, let's say water is flowing from one from a pitcher to a cup, you don't need a parsa necessarily. You may need a regulator, but you don't need a parsa, a partition. Partitions are necessary when there's a shift. When there's a shift. So he gives the example of a partition. A parsa is like a muscle. A teacher is teaching an idea. So there's eris and kalim. The eris is the idea. The kalim are the words he's using. But then he sees the student doesn't get it, or the student is not on the level. So he gives him a muscle, an example. A Muslim in Indian Akhir. If it's a Muslim from the original idea, then it's not a Muslim. You have to bring a Muslim that the student says, ah, the Muslim I understand. So the Muslim is from an alien or foreign idea that the student can relate to, but it's an example to help you understand the original idea. He says, that's a parsa. The parsa between Atsilis and Biyah is that in Biyah you speak about a lakus, binyonim achenim, that are not Atsilis. That's what he says, that language. In Atsilis, you use the actual language, the language Atsilis relates to. In Biyah, you can't use Atsilis language. So you need a language, Minyonim Achedim, that are not of Atsilis, but they are inferring and referring to Atsilis. So the muscle becomes a partition, a, uh, a curtain, you can say. Like, just like you wear blinds, you wear, uh, you wear, uh, you wear um, sunglasses. In order to filter the light, the muscle allows the idea to be conveyed to another paradigm, to another idiom. Then you can go back and climb the ladder and reconnect to the idea itself. So the parsa is, on one hand, it's a concealer or a channeler. On the other hand, it ultimately will reveal the idea. As he explains the difference between parsa and tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is a concealer. A parsa is a channeler. Or a veil or a curtain or a separator. 
The parsois, for example, that are often described are the three main parsois, like you have in the Beis Amigdash or in the Mishkan, between Holy of Holies and the Holy, and between the Holy and the El Moed, and of course the El Moed, and outside. So you have three. The three are also compared to the three big dekadish. Vasisa big dekadish. Moshe made garments for, uh, for Aaron. The Chachmei Lev, the, the, tail, the um, craftsman made, and Bnei Yisrael made garments. These are again three parsois. Three general parsois, usually between superconscious and conscious. That's between keser and chokhmah. Between moichin and midis, which is the metzah the throat. The first one is the membrane between higher than intellect and intellect. And the third one is bringing it down between atzilus and biyah, the diaphragm, the chatzra kovah, that brings it from midis and to malchus all the way into biyah. So you have three in general, but there are many, many more parsois. And they're discussed at length in Hemshech Hayim Beis. And I'll give you the chapters. In 107, 108, he talks about it. In chapter 137, and then in chapter 416. After that, there are no more chapters. So the Maimorim, Truma and Tetzava, Kisisa, Odem, Kiyiyah, Achrei, Sfartem, Kisavoyim, Bamidbar, all Tafresh Ayin Hay in volume 2. In the, the volume 2 of Ayin Beis, pages 876, through 896, and then 956 through 987. It's a lengthy, lengthy discussion. I'm actually learning it and teaching it right now. So I'm right By the way, if you want to hear the recordings of the IMBs, you just email us and we'll be happy to send them to you as they're taught. We have a WhatsApp group where, we are, uh, where all the audio recordings are posted, and there also will all be, many of them have been posted, and many more will be posted on IMBs. On our on Iron Bay's website that we uh, on the YouTube channel that we have for Iron Bay's, so there he discusses at length these ideas and explains the purpose of the parsa. Is number one purpose is in order to create these partitions so a structure should be sound. Without these partitions, the structures can be overwhelmed one by the other. So you need to have these different partitions and separators. And there he talks about it in so many different levels, including the. Um, the Reshus the, the on the Mizbeach, which was this, the, the screen on the Mizbeach, and the many other places where he talks about the mica, this is like the, when you, you build a, a gate around the roof, and, and both in Apikasidis and Apinigla, and so on and so forth, and talks about the, the different Parsoyas, including on the highest levels, called the beard is a level of Parsoyas, the Payas, you have the Avir al Gabakroima, which is the, 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 the space above the membrane, above the space between the skull and the intellect, the superintellect between superconscious and conscious, between an atik and between atik and arich, between arich and chachma, and of course the three general ones that I just referred to, which is the keser, uh, the one that is most translucent. The next parse is a little less translucent, which is the between meichen intellect and midas, and the most, and the third parse, which is the most uh, opaque, and that is between atzilus and biyah. But there are even more parsois that go down, even to the point of complete darkening the flow as you go downwards. So that's the general gist of the parsois. And the goal is, like he explains, is zichucha parsa. We want to create a dira betachtenim, transform the world. You have to transform and you have to refine the parsa. How do you refine the parsa through our work? By not just accepting the minimal flow, but working our way back and working through the parsa, refining it so we can identify through the moshal, you come to understand the nimshal and you climb the ladder from one level to the next by refining and expanding 
the, these partitions that allow you then to retrace your steps and connect back to the highest, highest levels, even before the tzimtzum, as Ayim Bez explains. Let us now do the three essays, two in Hebrew, one in English this week. The first essay is um, Das, the theme of Das. Ba'arya Yenison Chadad, age 20, Migdal Ha'imek, Israel. The yeshiva student. So the essay talks about Das. As Das as an internalization. To how, a, a way, a path of internalization and application. And it gives a, first a case study of in general. He says the purpose of this discourse is um, how to take an idea and turn it into something that you actually internalize and, uh, and, and, and own and actualize. And how can we also do this both for ourselves, both as parents to our children and students and educators to our students? To be able to take an idea, a theory, an ethereal theory, and turn it into a personal owner, owning it, and complete integration. So he speaks about the levels of intelligence Chachma Bina Das and the recognition and clarity Das brings beyond Chachma Bina. Internalization. Adam Yadas Chava. Then he goes on to speak about the, the dichotomy, the dissonance between intellect and internalization, and how we, how we counter that, both in the world of education, in the world of uh, communication, in, social, in our social lives, and really does a pretty thorough job in many different, uh, in many different areas. And then the third part is the solution, through his bonanus, and through a series of steps, which is contemplation, concentration, effort, um, understanding well an idea, which is going through the steps here, and how to bring it into action. He gives a whole methodology of how to actually use Das as a tool of internalization and actualization. So this essay and all the other essays are posted at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. And if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, we will send out the new uh, essays as they are posted. The second essay is called Rayon Bechsidis by David Oledart, age 26, Chadera, Israel, Shliach of the Rebbe in Chadera. Yeah. Now, Rayon Bechsidis, this means idea in What he does is takes, is a very wonderful essay where he takes the idea of. Um, how we can actually actualize ourselves and, and to recognize are we really living up to our greatest potential. And he uses the idea of Tayu and Tikkun in Chesidus from the Maimer Achrei Meis, Tafresh Memtes, that Tayu, many people think, just means yesh. There's no humility. He says, no, it's misplaced humility. Sometimes humility is so humble that it doesn't fulfill what the, the divine mission is. And explains Bittl two ways. There's healthy Bittl and unhealthy Bittl. Meaning the two different ways you cannot annihilate yourself or annihilate. You have to be somebody to be able to be bottle. Discuss in a very nice way the balance necessary to achieve that. So that's essay number two. And fi- finally, essay number three in English is The Perfectionist Skoula by Basi Yahel, age 27, Kingston, Pennsylvania. Full-time homemaker, part-time editor, and teacher. And, of course, she tackles the issue of the perfectionist produces impeccable work. This essay contains the Hasidic toolbox to free the perfectionist. 
definitions of concepts and chassidus that will be used to help the perfectionist. Contemplation, Yismach Yisrael Be'esav, Betochen, Simcha, Peretz, Geder. Personal Golas and Gula, why applying chassidus concepts helps. Application, practical, real-life rut scenarios that perfectionists may experience and their solutions using the Hasidic toolbox. And finally, check up a worksheet that utilizes the perfectionist skills in order to track progress and remain focused on the godly plan. Very nicely done. And one of the top essays, of course. Um, and uh, goes through the different steps necessary to be able to channel this perfectionist need, but to make it productive instead of being trapped by it. Also with some case studies and scenarios. So well done, and I commend you for that. And it's written at the end, she signs off, written by a freed by Hasidus perfectionist. Very nice. Okay, so that covers the essays. With that, we shall conclude this week's episode of My Life, Hasidus Applied 215. We are here every week, except when I announce otherwise, because due to Yontif, are the reasons that uh, we continue every week. And it's an, always an honor to share a few words, and please help us, support us, be generous in your support at MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship. We'll be here next week. will be a special Gimel Tamas edition, being that next Sunday will be the Sunday before Shabbos Gimel Tamas. And we should already be zeich that we should not have to talk about any of the, the, the darker elements of Gimel Tamas, only the positive, which is the way of Chassidus. Everyone have a very blessed week. And uh, until next Sunday, everyone be gebenched. Thank you very much.